Okay, I'd like to invite you to take your Bibles to Ephesians 6, verse 5. Ephesians 6, verse 5. <clears throat> Ephesians 6, verse 5 deals with the section on slaves, uh, slaves' relationship to his master, a master's relationship to his slave, and so let's read the text and then we'll, we'll dive in. This is the reading of God's word. Ephesians 6 verse 5. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with the good will as to the Lord and not to man knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your precious word that you've given to us. Thank you, Lord, that we can have the time to study it. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to settle this matter in our hearts, to understand what slavery was in, in your word and in history, that we might have something to say against the skeptic and those who object against your, the truth of your word. But, Lord, that above all, that we would still share the gospel, the good news of how people can be reconciled to you through your beloved Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so our text introduces us to this topic of slavery, which has caused much confusion, questions, criticisms uh, against the Bible and against Christianity. And the question is simply this, does the Bible endorse slavery? That's the question. Doesn't Paul simply just say in verse 5, bondservants, obey your earthly masters? Now, why would he say that uh, if God is against slavery? Why it does it seems very indoorsy to me, right? If that's a word that he just commands slaves to obey, he doesn't say no, masters, let your slaves go free. Rather, no, this is how you fulfill your slave master relationship. Now, the difficulty of this question, does God endorse slavery, is compounded by the fact that the slavery which we found in, in the time that Paul wrote, the Greco-Roman period was a very different form of slavery, the slavery that we tend to think about when we think of the word slavery. And even more than that, not just was the slavery in Paul's day different, the slavery in Paul's day was also different than the slavery found in the Old Testament. So we have a slavery in the Old Testament, we have a slavery during Paul's day, and then we have the slavery that we tend to think about in the UK and America and like modern, let's just call that modern day history, slavery. So what makes this matter even more difficult is that God didn't just permit slavery in the Old Testament. God said you may have slaves. Listen to Leviticus. Just listen to this. We're going to go to the Old Testament soon. But Leviticus 25, 44 says, You may buy male and female slaves from among the nations around you. That's what the law says. You may. So again, does the Bible endorse slavery? Now, I believe this is an issue that warrants us to hit the pause button on Ephesians and just do a topical study of slavery. Now, last time I did tell you 
Last time I did a topical sermon, I said, you, can, you don't have to open your Bible. I repent from that. Okay, you need your Bible, especially uh, to just bring it every Sunday. But especially I want you to, to go with me to the Old Testament and try and see with me what the Old Testament actually says, what the laws actually were, and try to put this, this puzzle together. Why was this slavery? Why did God permit it? Why did God say you may buy slaves? And let's try and wrap our minds around that. And my aim in this sermon is very simple. I want to help you just settle this matter in your heart. Because this is an unsettling matter. Like, I don't know if you've ever read through the entire Bible. You come to the section where God just says these things. Or you just conveniently skip it and go to Mark or Gospels or Psalms, right? Or you've never really thought about it deeply enough to say, okay, I don't know why these verses are here. And that's my aim is I want, you to, I want this to be settled in your heart, number one. I want you to, be, to have something to say against skeptics. If somebody brings this matter to you, what you can say. But I also want to show you God's heart. And that was the thing that surprised me. I kind of, when I start, started the study of this, this topic, I thought I'm just going to defend the Bible and just show why you know, the, these verses say that. But at the end of my study, I just saw God's mercy, God's justice, God's holiness. Because remember, even Jesus said when he was criticizing the Pharisees of neglecting the weightier matters of the law, what did he say? What, what are the weightier matters of the law? Justice, mercy, faithfulness. So we shouldn't be surprised when we study these laws to find what? Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And that's what I found as, we, as, we, as I studied it as well. But I also want to say, um, if you might be the skeptic in this service right now, you, you might not even be a believer, you might not even be a Christian, you, you are the skeptic. I just want to say you're very welcome here. <laughs> this is a safe space for you to be a skeptic and just to come and listen to what the Bible says and to grow together and to learn what the Bible says. But I do want to ask you to at least be open to the evidence to be open to what the Bible actually says, and if what the Bible says is true, to be willing to change your view. That's my hope for you if you are the skeptic. So we'll simply walk through the Old Testament and New Testament briefly together and just see what that says. Okay, so heads up, this will be definitely more of a bit of a more intellectual sermon than our usual just expository sermon and devotional applications and things like that. But but I do think just having more clarity of Scripture is already such a blessing, right? Just walking away and feeling... Okay, I, I know the Bible better. That's a blessing. That gives stability into our lives. So that's my goal. So let's start with the key problem when it comes to this discussion. So right out of the gate, what is the key problem? The key problem is the word itself. Slavery. Like so many other Bible study errors, mistakes, we read our own understanding of the word into the text instead of allowing the text to tell us what it means. Right? So when we hear the word slavery, what comes to your mind? This is like a basic test. When you hear the word, you're a slave of somebody else. What are some of the things that, that images that you have in your mind? Maybe something like this. People being kidnapped, sold for profit, usually based on their skin color. So it's often a very uh, racist thing. Um, people in a lifelong position of slavery, without any means to be freed, without any rights, people being treated like property, and so you can abuse and hit your slave and do whatever you want, and there's no consequences. Okay? Or et cetera, et cetera, right? When we hear the word slavery, those are the kind of images or the concepts that comes into our minds. 
Someone basically who has no human rights is less than human really. This slave is just a thing that I can do with what I want. Now here we all agree. Christians, non-Christians, skeptics, non-skeptics, we all agree on what, that that is evil. What I've just described to you is evil, wicked, and despicable. And we should call it as it is. But guess what? That's what the Bible says. That's exactly what the Bible teaches. If we study it carefully, that's why it was Christians who abolished, who was the first to abolish slavery because they, they studied their Bibles carefully. Now, of course, you've got those Christians who also use the Bible as an excuse for slavery, but that's like anything else. If they studied the Bible carefully, they missed the point. They missed the point. And if we look at what the Bible actually says, we too would have been fighting as well and said, no, that's not what the, what the Scripture says. So in other words, the key problem is this. We're using the same word, but we have different dictionaries. We have the word slave, but we have different dictionaries. Slave, slavery is a trigger word that just conjures up images of the UK and America and how people were stealing, kidnapping people from from Africa and those type of countries and sold them. Now, just to give you an illustration of how this can happen with other things. This is not just a, a, a problem with the Bible. This happens with other older books that we might be studying. Now, imagine you're reading one of the Puritans who lived in the 17th century And you read this following sentence in their books. God is awful. God is awful. I knew these Puritans didn't love God. Like, look at them. They're saying God is an awful God. Now, again, what what did we just do? We, We took our definition of the word awful and read that into their word. But what they meant was full of awe. Right? God causes me to, it's basically our awesome. Okay, so their awful was our awesome. So some, I remember the first time I read that, I, I got that jerk reaction. Like, Whoa, wait, what, what's happening here? But again, if we have the same dictionaries, we can understand what people wrote long ago. And that's the same thing here. When we read the word slave, or you may buy slaves, what was happening in that culture? What was the definition of those type of words? So, so with me so far? Okay, so let's go. So I want you to turn to Exodus 21. Exodus 21, that's going to be, we're going to spend a lot of time in this, this chapter. But before we, before we read some of these verses, let me just quickly give you some of the historical background or the nature of slavery. Why was slavery allowed in the Old Testament? Why did God permit it? Well, because of this simple thing that slavery in the Bible was voluntary. Now, if you just say that to a skeptic, right? God permits slavery. Did you know slavery was voluntary? Voluntary. People sold themselves into slavery. It was a way out of extreme poverty. So imagine you have so much debt, you don't know what to do. You can't pay off your debt. Now, slavery was an option for you to say, okay, I'll work for you. I'll sign a contract. It was a contract. As we're going to see now, there was a time limit to the slavery in the Bible, so that you can provide for me food and clothing and shelter. So this was actually a very merciful thing. That's what I said. Slavery in the Old Testament was merciful. This was a way out. Instead of dying, instead of starving, you can be a slave. Listen just to one verse. For example, Leviticus 25.47. Leviticus 25.47. If a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich, and your brother besides him becomes poor, and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner with you. 
So when the Bible says buy slaves, this is the kind of concept that's behind that. You may buy people that willingly offers their services to you. That's the idea. It's not like, so when we hear buy, we think slave or kidnapping. That's the kind of things that we're thinking about, but that's not what it means. It's an agreed upon contract of a set period of time, maximum six years. Seventh year, you, had to go free, you could go free. And in turn, you get provision and clothing and food. So again, that's just a simple question. You can just reply to someone that says, did you know slavery in the Bible was voluntary? By the way, that's behind those very difficult passages where it says when a father sells his daughter into slavery. Now again, you just read that. Again, what is the first thoughts in your mind? The daughter is a sex slave and she's just used and abused. No, that's the, literally the opposite. A father, family so poor, they can't provide. He can't provide for his daughter. He agrees that his daughter goes into slavery to work with the prospect of marriage. And this is the thing. In the Old Testament, if the master wanted to have sex with his slave, he had to marry her. He couldn't have sex with a slave without marriage. And that, and that immediately elevates the slave to what? A wife. And she gets all of that benefits, all of the privileges of a wife. That's Old Testament, okay? So, that's, so the only exception to this voluntary slavery was when Israel conquered other nations and the women and the children were left and they, and they made them slaves. We're going to get to that a little bit later. That's the only exception. The other slavery was voluntary selling myself into it. Now, let's talk about the rights, the rights of slaves. So that was kind of the nature of slavery. But let's talk about the rights. What, what rights did you ha- do you have as a slave if you were a slave? Let's read one verse, Exodus 21, 16. <clears throat> 21 verse 16 says, Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. Amen. We have coffee and tea at the back. You're welcome to join us. <laughs> right? It, this, it's almost like, okay, do you see, like, this is not the same idea that you might be thinking of when you hear the word slave. If you kidnap someone, or if you have been in possession of someone that's kidnapped, death penalty. See, it was verses like these that Christians just read. I'm like, wait a minute, what are we doing here in America? What are we doing here? Let's fight against this slavery. This is evil. One verse, right? So already we're seeing this is not the same kind of slavery that we might be thinking of. So that's, that's why these verses are so good. Now, what about abuse? Did you have the right as a master to abuse your slave? Well, just drop down a few verses down. Um, verses 26 to 27. 26 to 27. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. Now, if you're a Pharisee, you're like, okay, but if you, if you hurt the hand, then the slave has to stay, right? Because it only says tooth and an eye. No, that's not the idea, right? God's not just concerned with eyes and teeth. The idea is if you hurt your slave physically, if, you, if he has physical harm after you've hit him, your slave is, is welcome to go free. By the way, there is nothing like this in any ancient documents on slavery laws. Nothing like this. This is the basis of human rights, right? This is unprecedented in the ancient world that if you just hurt your slave, if you abuse your slave, slave can go free. That was his right. So, and this puts... The, the context of one of the skeptics' most favorite verses. So there are two verses. If you just know these two verses and how to respond to them, you'll know every skeptic's 
verse, okay? The first one is in Exodus 21. Exodus 21, verse 20 to 21. Okay, this is a famous, you'll see it on Facebook, YouTube, comments. These verses are going to come up over and over and over again, okay? Um, They need these verses like I need KFC on Sundays. All right, so they just need these verses to make their point. So let's, let's read it together. Okay, now you know what I do after Sundays. <laughs> okay, let's read 21 to 22. Or 20, sorry. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with the rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. Okay, you can see why this is like a, ni- a great verse for skeptics to just use. Other trans- NIV says, slave is his property. So that translation is not very helpful in our modern time. But literally, ESV got, gets it right. The slave is his money. So you often, this is how the objection will sound like. So a master is free to hit and abuse his slave as much as he wants. Even if he, only if he dies, then he will be punished. But even if you hit and abuse a slave to the inch of his life and he survives, nothing happens to the master. The master can just do that because he is his property. That's how the objection will sound like. And you read the verse, you're like, wow, that kind of seems like what it says, right? What's, our, what, what, what's your response? Have you read 26 and 27? <laughs> okay. Have you read it in context? So these verses are not talking about that the master is free to abuse his slave as much as he wants. We just read the verses that say that if you do that, you're, you're, there is no, there's not no consequences. The slave can go free. What this means, when the Bible says avenged, in other translation, punishment, that same word is used in other contexts to relate to the death penalty. So what this verse is saying is this. If you kill your slave, you die. Life for a life. Eye for an eye. Tooth for a tooth. Right? That's the idea of that. So it says literally the opposite, that they are just your property, that you can just do with them what you want. It says if you kill them, you must be put to death. You can kill your bull and your ox because they're not human. But if you kill a slave, because they are created in the image of God, you die. So do you see, this is such a beautiful verse to show the dignity and the worth of slaves. They are made in the image of God. You can't just treat them like you wish. Slavery in the Old Testament was not about race. There's only one race, the human race. That's what the Bible says, right? There's only one race. We are the, we're humans. So already this initial picture of slavery is starting to crumble in our minds, right? So no kidnapping, no abuse. If you kill a slave, you die. That's, that's already like good enough to kind of make a strong case against. But here's another right slaves add. Slaves could go three in the seventh year. So When you worked for someone as a slave, it was a temporary thing. It wasn't a permanent thing. Just look up at verses 2 to 4. So Exodus 21, verse 2 to 4. When you buy a Hebrew slave, okay, so you hear already those triggering words, okay, but now you have that in in your mind, not as just kidnapping. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. In the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons and daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. Okay, again, 
unprecedented in the ancient world for a slave to work for six years, seventh year can go free. Nothing like this. Now, the reason why the wife and the children had to stay if the wife was provided by the master is because she still has to finish her term, her contract, right? So just because you married a wife and then you leave, you can't just take your whole family with you. Now, you might say, but that seems a bit harsh. That seems a bit wrong. But as a man, you have three options to keep your family. Option number one, you wait. Just wait until your, your wife and children's terms are done or your wife's terms are done and you, and, you, and you can have her. Option two, redeem them, buy them free. The difference between what years that, how many years they have left, if you can afford that. Or option number three is verses five and six. Look at verse five and six. It says, but if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl and he shall be his slave forever. So option three, stay, right? Stay forever. Notice who is the one who says that he wants to stay. Is it the master or the slave, right? The slave. So the the master can't just go to the judges and say, guys, my slave really, really loves me, you know? He wants to stay. Trust me. Take my word. You can trust my word for it, right? No, the slave has to say, I love my master. I love my wife and my children. I want to stay. And only then does this law apply. Okay, so again, do you see how all the laws are really geared to protect slaves and their rights and their dignity and their value of life? But then I love the ceremony that they had to do. In verse 6 again, it says, Then his master shall bring him to God, he shall bring him to the door, or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an oar, and he shall be his slave forever. So Deuteronomy's passage says, bore his ear through his ear and the door. So it's like, as they um, bore the the hole in the ear, it also goes through the door. And the symbolism is this, my ear now is pinned to this house forever. What my master says, I, I do. I belong to him. He has my ear. Right? What a beautiful, it's a beautiful imagery. And I think, I think this is a beautiful illustration of when the Bible says we are slaves of Christ. Isn't this a beautiful imagery of that? We are bond servants of Christ. Why do we love Christ? Because he first loved us. Right? He freed us from our slavery of sin, our slavery of, of Satan. And we, we willingly say, you can have my ear, pin it to the Bible, pin a, a hole through. If you want to get an earring, you can maybe try that. I don't know if that's going to work, but... But that's the picture. Lord, when you speak to me, when I hear your voice, I will obey you. I will listen to you. You are my master. And he is the kind of master that died for us. Right? So his rule over us is not oppressive. It's full of mercy, justice, and love. And that's it's beautiful. Lord, here is my ear. And that should be our attitude. We are his slaves. We belong to him. And we should, we should give ourselves to him as well. Now, here's another right of slaves. It's Deuteronomy 23. Now, turn with me to Deuteronomy 23. Deuteronomy 23, verse 15 to 16. Honestly, this is one of my favorite ones. Um, Deuteronomy 23, verse 15. Okay, it says, You shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst in the place that he shall choose 
within one of your towns, wherever it suits him, you shall not wrong him. What, what a right, what law is this, right? He can live wherever he wants to. If he, if he flees from his master, you're not allowed to give him back up or for punishment. Again, nothing like this. If a slave was caught fleeing, either the slave is killed or he's handed back to the master for punishment. God says, no, protect him. You don't do that. But do you see the pattern here? The pattern here is very consistent. Slavery as an institution in the Old Testament was a thing of mercy to escape poverty or in extreme debt. And this, this doesn't mean you can, be, you can be abused, you can be treated as property, because if you abuse, you can let go free. If you kill, you get the death penalty, right? So there's just, if, if masters do these things, they don't find any justification in the law. It's just that now, of course, there are masters who do those things, but that's just the wickedness of man's heart. That's not because God says, shop, that's okay. As a reminder, this is the Old Testament. We're not dealing with the New Testament here or, you know, the gospel. This is just Old Testament revealing to us God's heart of mercy, justice, and love. Okay, now, in summary, turn to Leviticus. And then we're going to do one more verse, that, the second verse. I said the first verse that skeptics love is Exodus 21.20. 20, but we're going to get to the second one. And this one, I honestly, has been taking me the most time, like 80% of the study. Okay. But 19 verse 33. Okay, Leviticus 19 verse 33. Just gives a summary of how Israel were to treat foreigners. Foreigners in, gen- in general. Non-Hebrews. Listen to this. It says, Leviticus 19.33 When a stranger or a foreigner sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. You shall love him as yourself. Does that sound familiar? Okay. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. That's one of the key ethics of Israel, right? Remember, you were a slave. So how do you treat now those in your land that are strangers and foreigners? How should you now? You should love them as yourself. Remember Egypt. Remember your slavery. Remember your oppression. You're not allowed to do that. So it's only those who have forgotten or who don't love God, who don't fear God, who would do these kind of things. But this is beautiful, right? So that ethic of freedom from Egypt just colors in every other law. Now, let's go to the second verse, which skeptics like moth to a flame, you know, can't let go of. Okay, Leviticus 25, and you'll see, you'll see now shortly. 25, and we'll read from verse 39. You usually don't have like a whole sermon to explain to someone. You have to find like one sentence to try and... But, but yeah, now you have this benefit. But let's read uh, 25 verse 39. So if your brother becomes your poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, he and the children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his father. For they are my servants." whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over them, over him ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. As for your male, here's the verses. Okay, are you ready? Or as for your male and female slaves whom you may have, you may buy male and female slaves from among the nations that are around you. You may also buy from among the strangers who sojourn with you. 
and their clans that are with you, who have been born in your land, and they may be your property. You may bequeath them to your sons after you to inherit as a possession forever. You may make slaves of them, but over your brothers, the people of Israel, you shall not rule one over another ruthlessly. Okay, let's just admit, <laughs> this is a difficult passage. Okay, so let's just stay, start there. So the Hebrews are not allowed to be sold as slaves or be to re- ruled over harshly, but the foreigners are because they are their property. That's what the verse says, right? Now again, you have to try and put yourself in this historical context. There might have been so many reasons why a foreigner would become a slave. It might be the same reason as, as a Hebrew, right? Maybe just so poor, sells himself, sojourning among them. Or, right, because of conquest or as the Israelites were, were, were conquering the Canaan and those people became um, their slaves. Now, so those reasons, we don't know why they become slaves. We just read that they do become. But here is the key difference between a Hebrew slave and a foreigner or a sojourner among them. The context was what? In the year of Jubilee. Okay? The context is this, that in the 50th year, the Hebrew slaves are allowed to go back to what? The Hebrew slaves are allowed to go back to their clan and to their land, the inheritance of their fathers. Now, you're a foreigner, foreigner, you are a slave, guess what? You don't have land. You don't have any place to go to after you've been released. Right? So that's an option for you if you're a foreigner to stay forever. But the Israelites cannot just let them go. It's like the same. It's like imagining um, someone letting someone go in the middle of the desert and saying, go, you are free. But I don't have anywhere to go. No, 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 but at least you're free, right? Go, enjoy yourself. And that's the same thing here, right? So these verses still um, don't teach what the skeptics might think they teach. This doesn't mean kidnapping them. Okay, so again, just you, you can just start with all those laws, those rights of a slave. Doesn't mean kidnapping. Because he's still a human being, it means you can't abuse him, you can't kill him. They have all these provisions and these privileges, really, of, of a slave. But the only difference is that they can't be released in the 50th year because they have no land to go to. Okay. Now, why are they called property? <laughs> so that kind of answers the context and why they, you know, may have them and, and bequeath them to their children. But the text says in verse 45 at the end, they may be your property. What is going on here? Okay. So... Unfortunately, again, uh, like slave is a, is a trigger word, property is another one. You don't apply that word to people. But again, I don't think when, when the Bible makes this claim that the foreigners are their property, that they are not human beings. So the, I don't think the word property here refers to their value as a being, as a human being, but to their labor output, to their labor output. So they are their possessions in the sense that they belong to their family wealth. So their labor is seen as a great asset, and that is why they call their property. They belong to their, the wealth that brings the, the work labor of, of that family. So that's my, my short answer to that. And I wish I had another two months to study that so that I can give you better answers. <laughs> but, but in summary, okay, where, where have we landed in the Old Testament? There's, slavery was because of social, economical reasons, right? A very merciful thing. It wasn't based on race, kidnapping, Many rights to protect them because people are made in the image of God. So even if you just had the Old Testament, you would have enough to stand against the, the, the evil slavery that we have seen in our modern history. 
Okay, now let's go to the New Testament. So you, you can make your way. We can only take one book here and get to the book of Philemon. So that's almost at the end of your Bibles. Titus, Philemon, Hebrews. So it's right there almost at the end. But again, let me just set a bit of the, a little bit of the context in this. The Greco-Roman slavery was not the same as different from the old. This time, it's not God's people who's practicing slavery. This time it is the Roman Empire, a pagan nation, and inside of that nation there is a Christian, there's a church that God has saved and is using to, to share the gospel and change the world. Okay, so God was establishing the church. He wasn't coming to bring political reformation. I love this one, one person wrote and says, Christ was a reformer, but not an anarchist. So Christ was a reformer, but not an anarchist. Remember what Jesus said to Pilate? He says, if my kingdom was of this world, my servants would be fighting for me. But my kingdom is not of this world. So Jesus came to deal with our sin, to deal with our hearts, and to destroy slavery from the inside out. And we're going to see that. So another person said, the New Testament is like mini time bombs. So, so the Apostle Paul and others just dropped time bombs that would go off eventually to destroy slavery in its entirety. Another one, another author wrote this, Christianity does not begin by opposing the external system prevailing, but plants the seeds of love, universal brotherhood in Christ, communion of all in one redemption from God, our common Father, which silently and surely undermines slavery. And when it, here the slavery, the evil kind, right? The, the, the abusive kind. And that's the key. When Paul gives directions for slaves and masters in Ephesians that we've read, this does not mean God condones the institution of slavery, but only give advice and counsel and for those inside that institution, how to glorify God in it. That's the idea. So even the text we just read, right? Remember Ephesians 6 verse 4? When, what does God say to masters? Masters, do the same to them. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their masters and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. So whether you're a master or a slave, guess what? God doesn't show partiality. He will judge you equally, right? That, that should have caused masters to have some fear. Like, I can't just do whatever I want. With God, there's no partiality. 1 Corinthians 7.21, Paul writes to slaves again. Listen to his counsel to the slaves. He says, were you a slave when, when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is call, as, was called in the Lord as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. Notice how he like just flips our identity up. Okay, I'm gonna, um, you were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. You were bought with a price. You see, that's a time bomb. Planted. Do not become the slaves of men. So brothers, whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Notice how, yes, Okay, <laughs> now everybody can see again. Um, just the alarm. I, th I wonder if the alarm's going to go off. Oh, I don't know. Okay, thanks, Billy. It's like an anthill, right? Okay. So what Jesus does here is transforming the way we view ourselves. He says, were you a slave? Guess what? You are free in Christ. Are you free? Guess what? You're a slave of Christ. You see how he like just turns around your identity say, how are you going to treat now your slaves? How are you going to treat now those who are free with equality? We are actually the same, right? That's actually the idea. Do not become the slaves of men. 
Christ is a reformer, but not an anarchist. That's the idea. When he breaks down the structure of slavery, of oppressive slavery, he starts with our hearts. He starts with our view of ourselves. That's how he changes us. And this famous verse, Galatians 3, 27, another verse you can just write down. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither, can you guess it? Slave nor free. Neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. Slave, master, guess what? You are one. You are equal before God. We are going to the same heaven. It's not going to be a slave heaven. I've actually heard some very racist, race, um, racist interpretation of the Bible that literally believes either people are not human and there's going to be a different side of heaven. It's going to be for those kind of people and our kind's going to be here. That's so against even the spirit of the Bible, right? We should just call that out. That's wicked. That's evil. But what Paul says, listen, we are one. We are equal in Christ. There's equal footing when we stand before God on Judgment Day. Don't, don't think you're going to have extra perks just because you were the master. No. Don't think you are at a disadvantage before God because you were a slave. If you trust in Christ, if you work hard as for the Lord, your reward is great in heaven. That's the, how God is encouraging us. And did you know? It's another. Okay, so the first question is, slavery was voluntary. Did you know slavery was voluntary? Second one is, did you know there's a whole book in the Bible addressed to a slave master? Do you know that? Another just a good rhetorical question you can just, you know, plant in people's minds. Philemon. Okay, if I, if I say it wrong, please forgive me. I'm not really sorry, but I think it's Philemon. That's the way I'm going to pronounce it. Okay. Philemon. Philemon in Afrikaans. Okay. So here is a letter Paul wrote to a slave owner, Philemon, who owned a slave called Onesimus. Onesimus ran away, ran away from his master, presumably Presumably because he stole something. So it's not a, it's not a, this is not one of those clean runaways. This is taking the family jewels and I'm running. <laughs> this is like a, this, he's guilty. Then he meets Paul. Here's the gospel in prison while Paul is in prison and he gets saved. Now what? What do we do with this relationship that was broken? That's why he wrote Philemon. Okay, let, let's read from verse 8. It says, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you, Philemon, to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. So Paul wanted to keep Onesimus for gospel work, but he sends him back because he wants Philemon's consent. And obviously he knows of this fractured relationship between him. So look at what he says next in verses 15 to 16. He says, for this Perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, right? Especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Do you see how Paul just flattens that? He comes back to, you must receive him back, not as a slave, but as a brother. The gospel makes us family, 
That's what the gospel is. You see how the, and here's another time bomb, another seed planted by Paul that would encourage people like William Wilberforce to go with this and destroy and abolish the slave trade, the despicable slave trade that we saw. So, beloved, this is the full picture of Scripture. This is what the Bible teaches. The Old Testament includes slavery as a way out of poverty and death, right? Therefore, I have many laws to protect slaves and dignify them. The New Testament planted the seeds to destroy the structure of uh, abusive and oppressive slavery by changing us from. But this is God's heart. God's heart hasn't changed from the old to the new. God is for the oppressed. He's for the vulnerable. He's a father to the fatherless. That's what we read. This is God's heart. And the slavery God really wants you to be freed from is the slavery from your sin. That's the big, Jesus said, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. The Jews thought, I'm not a slave. We've never been a slave. Jesus said, no, you, you are a slave. You're a slave to your passions, to your desires. Is it really freedom for the alcoholic to be free to choose alcohol, but he just cannot stop? It's just such an overwhelming passion that he just, next thing he does, he, he, he goes and drinks again. Or the person that is overwhelmed by anger, right? He's free, and yet he's so enslaved to his anger, destroying people around him, destroying those in his life. And here is the massive lie about freedom. Freedom is not that you can do what you want. That's not true freedom. True freedom is when what you want to do and what you ought to do is the same desire. That's um, John Piper helped me there as well. That's, that's the definition of true freedom. What you want to do and what you ought to do is the same thing. Now you are free. When your heart aligns with the law and your conscience agrees, there is your freedom. So when your heart pulls away, that's why that song we sing and come thou found is so close to our hearts, right? Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. There's this fight in us for our, our desires to line up with the word, but yet it keeps pulling away. That's, we hate that. It frustrates us. Heaven is coming where that's not going to be the problem. And we're looking forward to that. But here's the thing, only Jesus can give you a heart that desires his law, his words. Only Jesus can change you so that you can say with the psalmist, your word is like honey. So sweet, so good, so lovely, so good to my soul. How did he do that? How did he free us from our slavery? Well, he died for our slavery. He died for our sins. He died for these sins that keep taking us captives by hanging on a tree, absorbing the anger of the Father, the wrath of God that you deserved on himself, satisfied the wrath of God. On the third day, rose again, living forever, ascended on high. He is the King of kings, Lord of lords. He has all authority both in heaven and on earth. And this king says, do you want to be free from your slavery? Come to me. I have paid for you. You can be free from your slavery of sin, Satan. You can, you can be my slave. And I will give you rest, joy, satisfaction, fullness of life. You can stand in awe of who I am. I'm a fountain of living water that keeps on replenishing your heart. That's the kind of master that I am. So come to me, all who are weary 
and heavy laden. And that's the invitation for all of us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that even as we study this this topic of slavery, Lord, that we even here can see the gospel, the good news, that all of us were slaves. All of us were slaves of our sin, slaves of our own passions, our own desires. Maybe some of us are still slaves of our own desires, Lord, and but you are, you hold the keys of our freedom. You've bought us with a price, the price of your precious blood on that cross, that we might, that our desires might align with the truth of your word. Father, um, I pray that you'd protect us, Lord, just from being proud or being puffed up with our knowledge, but that this would humble us deeply, that we would truly love you more as the God of justice, the God of mercy, the God of awesome deeds and righteousness. Thank you, Lord, that you didn't just leave us, but you came to redeem us. Lord, we pray that you might steady our hearts in this topic and this um this discussion of slavery, Lord, and I pray that we would gladly give our ears to you, that you would bore through a hole through our ears, that it would belong to you and to you alone, Lord, that when you speak, we would just say, yes, Lord, we would obey. Oh, Lord, that's our desire, and therefore we can't wait for you to come back, to take away our sin from us, that we might do that without hindrance and in perfect joy and freedom. Lord, we pray all of this for your beautiful name. Amen.